So here we are, back at Conversations, and today's topic is shame. And I got two panelists here that's going to help us, us navigate through that. So the way that we do Conversations, you've never come before, we need reminding of how we do our program. We'll have our panelists introduce themselves, and then they will kind of say what they do here in the city. Uh, and then after we kind of get an introduction, we'll go back and hear their opening thoughts about this topic of shame. And shame is a, it's a really big topic, and I didn't really give our panelists like a worth of this thing. I just kind of wanted to hear when they hear the word shame, shame culture, whatever, just shame, what kind of comes to mind, what's the, the, uh, the first thoughts. Because I'm sure that everyone in here at the same time has some kind of like, knee-jerk reaction to when you hear the word shame and it kind of takes you places. So I'm interested to hear where our time takes us. Once they introduce themselves and give us their opening thoughts, we'll turn it over to you all to uh, ask questions, make your own comments, and they'll interact with that. We'll see where things take us. Okay? You want to kick us off? Sure. Also, I was wondering if we should just switch the topic to stuff like people like. Because uh, yeah. I feel like there's a lot, it might also be like slash shame, like I think there could be connections there, but <laughs> I feel be. like that has a lot of promise, so yeah. if, if this stalls out quick, that's where we're going. Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Have y'all listened to the new song? Yeah, I don't like it. I like it. I like it more than I like the others, the other single from the other album. Mm, look what you made me do. Yeah, I didn't like that. That was not good. It sounded like the uh, I'm too sexy for my shirt song. Yes, it did. That's why you like it. It found the Bible would imagine it did. Yeah. Okay, we're, we've There's already all... gone off the rails. Sorry. Good start. My name is Mallory Wyckoff. My uh, husband, Tim, and daughter, Olive, who's two and a half, and I have been uh, at Otter Creek, I think, three, three and a half years or so. I vocationally, I teach at Lipscomb in the Bible department. I teach for Rochester University in the Bible department. I also work at Lipscomb uh, supporting our doctor of ministry students as they're doing their research. I'm a spiritual director. I have a practice here in Nashville. I meet with folks one-on-one -on -one and um, find great joy in doing that. I also teach and train other <coughs> spiritual directors through Lipscomb's Institute for Christian Spirituality. Uh, so those five or six jobs sort of take up a fair bit of my uh, my time right now. Um, my uh, prior work was, was, prior to teaching, I worked in a residential facility for women survivors of various forms of trauma and most often sexual trauma. So that certainly um, has shaped me, continues to inform the things that I think about, the things I care about, the research that I did. This guy actually was on my dissertation um, advisory panel, a little known fact. Also, even less than, in fact, some people, as I was telling Patrick, some have compared Chris and I to Jay-Z and Beyonce, which I think makes perfect sense when you see us. So I think you'll see that come out today. Uh, so anyways, it just feels fitting that we're on this panel together talking about shame. Glad to be here with y'all. Thank you. All right. <laughs> nice. I gotta pull out my best Jay-Z. I never met you. Yeah, he had a dicey pass. <laughs> He's getting better. He's getting better. He's getting better. He's getting better. Okay. 
Um, he, he may be resolving some of his shame. Yeah. Redeeming. Yeah. Yeah. It created a really good album. Didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we do things. Uh, okay, uh, I'm Chris Gonzalez. I'm a professor at Lipscomb University. I direct the marriage and family therapy program. And uh, so I teach uh, master's level students who are going to become clinicians, therapists. Um, I teach undergraduate uh, psychology and family science courses. And I teach a little bit in the doctor of ministry course. And that's where uh, Mallory and I had some cool intersections. And she wrote a bomb dissertation. <laughs> and it was a joy to be part of that. Um, and and, and that's when the legend mm. of us began. Um, good times. Um, I also have a private practice in town where I see uh, individuals, couples, and families. Uh, and I provide supervision for therapists as well. And uh, apparently I flip houses. <laughs> we just, we bought a house two years ago and then we just, now we just sold it. And, it, and now we're buying another house. Stuff for people do. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. We're like, my wife and I are like, and people keep saying, you're like Chip and Joanna. I'm like, no, they're good at that, and we're not good at that. Um, they don't yell at each other, I, and, and, and we do sometimes. Um, they're, they're, uh, they look happy to be flipping a house. <laughs> we're suffering. <laughs> You might get more viewers. Yeah. You kind of like that. Real. <laughs> so there's... I can't say it. Okay. Um, that's me. That's okay. part of me. That's part of me. Do you want to start us then? Uh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, so kind of first initial thoughts of uh, shame. Uh, one of the things that came to mind is, uh, well, what is it? What is shame and what, how is it distinct from other things? And um, we say, like, it's very common in our culture to say guilt and shame together. Like, it just rolls off the tongue, we say guilt and shame. Uh, as though they're synonymous or parallels uh, or the same thing. And they're not the same thing. Um, shame researchers there is such a thing as a shame researcher um, almost universally agree that there is a substantial difference between guilt and shame and what they say is guilt is actually good it doesn't feel good but it's good, it's adaptive it, um, it is the emotional equivalent to physic what physical pain how it helps us stay alive so for example uh, my son who's now a freshman at, at Lipscomb when he was a little boy I was I was ironing my shirt one morning I remember and I had to uh, I had to do some, like get some more water to put in the iron or something and he's watching me he's just this little guy and I look at him <coughs> and I'm like hmm said, Kanan, don't touch this. It's very hot. Uh, it will hurt you. So don't touch it. Stay right there, and you can keep watching. I turn around, and it was not, I mean, it was instantaneously he touched it. And I, I, I sensed 
that he and I turned and and I saw his face turning red and his little lip started to like get fat and then he just and he, and he cried. he's never touched an iron since it was physical pain the fatherly wisdom was not adequate but the physical <laughs> pain was a teacher uh, that has given him a lifelong permanent lesson on that thing the pain said stop it and then dissipated over time but the lesson continued so put that over into the emotional that's what guilt is meant to do it keeps us alive it keeps us from doing things that will harm ourselves or others that's guilt shame uh, is is this corrosive uh, emotional experience that sometimes feels like guilt, but it's completely different. There's a diabolical impulse, I think, to shame. Not coming from the person, but like if shame were a monster, this is what it would be doing to you. Um, it wants to convince you, um, not that you did something uh, that could harm yourself or others, but that you are an entity that inherently harms yourself or others. You are that horrible thing that is inherently and essentially corrupted and it's permanent. Your condition is beyond repair. You cannot get out of it. Uh, you are a mistake. You didn't make a mistake. You didn't make a, a, a choice that was maybe not a good choice. You exist inherently as a mistaken part of this universe. And there's no way out. That is shame. Yes, sometimes guilt and shame can feel similar on the very surface level. But when you get down in, into it, there's nothing you can learn from shame. There's lots and lots you can learn from guilt. Uh, Guilt is sort of like that good coach that's really hard on you, but knows that that the best can come out. And shame is like that person who hates you and wants to torture you. It's, it's between a good coach and a torturer. And sometimes it feels a little bit the same, but you really got to distinguish between the two. Those are my, that's, there's my opening salvo. It's good. Thank you. So what I assumed would happen, and I, I think already has been the case, is that Chris, from his background and the context in which he's been formed and, and works, would inform then the way that he would think about shame and present it. And similarly, um, because my my training is primarily in theology, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of come from that lens for a minute, but then also autobiographically. So um, not that I want to take the whole time with my own story, but I feel like. Because shame has been something that, from a very early age, has been inherent to my story, my identity, how I've made sense of myself in the world, I need to just to name that. I don't, I don't know how to speak about shame outside of that. Uh, so um, so I'm, I'm happy to be uh, vulnerable with you all on this, but also to name that just briefly some of what I share might, might be uncomfortable. So I'll just encourage you, care for yourself however you might need to if anything I say feels unsettling. Um, so, the very first time that I was exposed to pornography, I was in kindergarten. 
My daughter is two and a half years old, and it is so upsetting to me to think how actually close she is to that age uh, in the kindergarten. The first time I was exposed to us in kindergarten, at a friend's house, her dad had a huge collection. She brought it out. And as you can imagine, at you know, four and a half, five years old, you have no concept of what you're seeing, no uh, context to be, to be able to make sense of it. Um, and so this is this incredibly difficult experience of I'm curious, I'm interested, I have no idea what this really is. Something tells me this isn't right, but I'm interested. What do I do with that? Trying to make sense of that at such an early age is impossible. And then actually had several similar experiences through the next few years of my life where at a neighbor's house or similar circumstances, I had a similar experience and similarly did not know how to make sense of that. But I knew enough to say um, there's something bad here. And rather than that remaining external to me, I internalized that and said, I am bad, I am wrong, which is what you're, you're naming and identifying shame is. It's not I've done something bad, but I am bad. And uh, years later, I'm able to now look back and sort of see the trajectory of my life and the past that I forged. But from an early age, because I was, I was afraid that, what my, that my core self was bad and wrong, um, my coping mechanisms that I developed was pursuit of success. That if I could do enough and do enough well enough, then I could really convince everybody else that I wasn't as bad as I knew I believed myself to be. Now at age six, seven, eight, that's not how I'm rationalizing, right? But immediately I began, I need to do I need to do a lot, I need to accomplish a lot, I need to be the best, I need to be the first. Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with Enneagram language, I'm a three. That became my identity. It's I need to perform, I need to be successful, and I've got to do it well. Um, I need to be praised because that helps me for a second feel like people see, okay, maybe I fooled them. Maybe that they think she's not as bad as she really is, that, that really what's at her core isn't actually bad. Um, and so that's been my life and then the experience of trying to undo some of those things. So a couple stories from Scripture that, that the ways that I have been thinking about how that makes sense, not just for me and my own story, um, but more, more generally speaking. And first, I just go to Genesis 3. And um, the story that you know, people talk about often as the fall, and uh, some have, have talked about this in terms of original sin, that humans are inherently sinful. Um, I could talk about that for hours, why I, I just resist that so much. But, but at minimum, what I want to say is rather than thinking about that story as... Um, the point where we can say, here's why humans are originally sinful, I think it's much more interesting to look at it and say, here, let's talk about our original wounds. So for me, at an early age, experiencing this exposure to something that I had no concept for and no, to know what to do with, there was this point of wounding and then incredible vulnerability in that. And I wanted to cover and hide. Similarly, you have these two characters in this story in this perfect, beautiful place who are experiencing this childlike sense of wonder and trust, trust of themselves, of each other, of the creator, and it's this incredible, beautiful, safe place for them. And then unexpectedly, somebody comes in, something comes in, some sense comes in and tricks them, deceives them. And in their innocence, uh, all of a sudden, there's this moment where there's this very clear distinction between all everything I just described and all of a sudden, now I know things I didn't know before. Now I cannot unsee or undo what I have now seen and done. And the immediate response in that is shame. 
right? They literally want to, all of a sudden the text talks about they know that they're naked. Before they didn't know they're naked. And then their, their actual response is they want to cover. They feel the need to hide because they feel vulnerable. Um, interestingly, they use fig leaves to cover, to cover themselves in that. Fig leaves are actually stinging to the skin. If you've ever worked with fig leaves, a lot of people will tell you, make sure to wear gloves because you can get all sorts of crazy allergic reactions to it. So the thing that they take hoping will cover their vulnerability and their shame actually further wounds them. And then it sets in cycle this motion of, of wounding. They wound themselves and others, and others who, who experience wounding further wound themselves and others, and we have the human condition. So I see that story through the lens of what it's like to experience shame, and then all of the coping mechanisms that we um, utilize to try to deal with that sense of vulnerability in, in our experience of shame to say, I am wrong, I am bad, something inherently in my core is bad and not good, and I want to do something otherwise or want to, to project otherwise to, to others. Um, similarly, I was thinking about it uh, last week in preparation for Easter and spending some time in, in um, some gospel readings and was following Peter and thinking about how he had experienced something in Jesus that was life-giving, right? That spoke a better word to him than, than whatever else he was experiencing, whatever narratives he was living by. And then days after he has said, surely, Lord, I will not deny you, right? I'm with you till the end. He does exactly the opposite of what he said he will do. And he finds himself afraid, right? He feels vulnerable, physically vulnerable, because he's seen what's, what's happening to, to Jesus. And he doesn't want that, that similar experience and to be met with that sort of violent end. So he stays sort of close. In Luke 18, it, it's, it's the sense of like he can see something, he's close enough, but he wants, to be, he wants to be hidden. And it's this image, he begins to warm himself by a fire, and he's talking to people, and ultimately they kind of, they see him for who he truly is, and they kind of name out, hey, you're the one who was with Jesus, right? And he's like, no, surely not, surely not me. And I remember just being struck by this image of him warming himself by the fire, that in that moment where he is most afraid of, of being so vulnerable, he's afraid of being exposed, uh, he finds a place to, to, he seeks out comfort, that even in this act of being by the fire to warm himself, he wants some sort of comfort, some sort of coping mechanism to say, I want to feel safe and protected and not feel the vulnerability that is so overwhelming to me right now. And yet, the very one who had the power to free him, the very one who had the power to offer him life, is the one that he's resisting right now, is the one that he's, he's denying. And that's certainly been my experience, right? That because of shame, um, and especially shame regarding sexuality from an early age, th that became this barrier. I thought, I, if I'm bad, if I'm inherently wrong, then certainly the divine does not want to have some sort of connection with me. And so I just cut off that part of myself from God. I did not invite God into any of those spaces in my life. Other spaces, yes, but not regarding sexuality because that's where the core of my shame um, um, lay. And so I see that in that, in, in, even in that story uh, with, with Peter, that the one who actually had the power to free him, to liberate him, to help him see that at his core that he was good just as before Genesis 3 when God looks at all creation and says, it is good and very good. That's actually what's true about Peter. That's actually what's true about me and you all. But shame tells us a much different narrative. Thank you. Okay, we've got some good stuff out there. Mm -hmm. uh, let's turn it over to you all. What kind of questions, comments, thoughts? 
uh, between Chris and Mallory have come up for you, and maybe you can tell your own experience, or all kind of thoughts about sharing too. And then we'll see where things lead us. So, who wants to kick us off? And as a reminder, I lead silent retreats, so I can sit in silence for a long time, days. <laughs> They got nothing? <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. No, no questions? Comments? Reactions? Agreements? What do you think are the best ways to pull yourself out of There we go. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think one thing <coughs> that is important is to, to recognize that that's what it is. That thing I feel or that experience I'm having is, is shame and kind of vet it a little bit. Is this a, is this a guilt situation from which I can learn something or is this, uh, am I experiencing something that is more, um, feels like I, I have a mistake, I have an error, I'm a problem. Um, I think if you can distinguish those, that, that can help you kind of figure out which, which way to go. Um, <clears throat> after that, I think there's a lot of um, distinguishing between truth and a lie. Shame lies. Uh, and being able to call the lie for what it is. Um, but you have to have some kind of truth uh, as a comparison to what the lie might be. Um, and so it's important to uh, have that anchor of truth. And, you know, what, what is that anchor? Who am I really is the question. Um, and as, as a believer, uh, what I have to come back to is I'm a child of God and that means I'm an expression of God. I am a, and I'm an effort. I'm an initiative of God in this world at this time. I'm an intentional communication to the world about something of who God is. And I may not really have a grasp of what that is, but I can still I can still get to a place where I can say, okay, if that's all true, and I, I hope it is, I think it is, um, and God is good, then what I am is good. So if that's true, what, what is shame telling me that's not true? And then trying to really distinguish between truth and untruth. So it's seek the truth. But then also, I think there's a community aspect of it. So you seek the truth. You get with truth seekers. You tell the truth. Um, and when I say tell the truth, you, you sit in the identity of who you are 
this expression of God, and here's all the things I've said, done, thought, things that have happened to me, and the community of people who are also truth seekers and truth tellers can can allow the distinction, the difference between who you are and whatever it is you did and whatever it is was done to you. And there, uh, the truth is that you should be loved uncontingent on any of those things because of this higher priority of identity, uh, which is child of God, expression of God, intention, inertia. Uh, I am part of the strategy God has in this world. And so if that's true, then, then I, can, I can rise above these other things. And it's not like dismissing those. That's actually, that's what shame is trying to do. It's telling you how horrible you are and then the things done to you and, and, and trying to mitigate those without some higher order identity identification. Um, and that's where the exhaustive coping mechanisms come in. It just, with, without a higher order identity uh, saying who I am really, if I don't have that, then, I've, then all I've got left is a bunch of fig leaves. And so, it, and it's exhausting. It just takes all your energy. And then, and says it's not enough. More shame. So, I, I think it's really contingent on identity. Um, and I'm not talking like things like identity politics or all, all that. I'm talking about theological, spiritual, uh, who am I really? And, and, and then all the other uh, important things like, uh, you know, uh, gender and ethnicity and all, all these other different categories that we find ourselves in, we can ask, how is that an expression of God? But it's got to be this first. I don't know. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. I, I try to listen to it because my natural impulse when shame surfaces is to um, almost try to appease it, to just suppress and appease. Like, one, I buy into it and I say the narrative that it's saying is true, um, but it's really uncomfortable and I wish it wasn't true, so I'm going to try to just suppress it and then project something else outward. And that, that you know, whatever that projection is, it, it looks different for, for each of us. Um, but for me, it, it's it's um, work hard enough, perform and produce, be as efficient, as productive as possible, and um, avoid failure at all costs. Uh, so if I actually listen to the narrative that shame is is offering and assume, as, as Chris named so well, that um, the, that, that narrative is always inherently going to be false, uh, then I try to take that as my starting point and say, well, if that's if that's a narrative that it's giving me, then what might be a different a different narrative? So I use the example of you know thinking about myself at age five, and what it was like to uh, to have these very early experiences of shame and how they formed me. Um, I remember listening to a podcast several months ago with Jonathan Merritt. He's a, a writer and it's for all sorts of um, media and. He, he also identifies as a type 3, but he was talking about 
how he never felt good enough. He always just felt like a bad boy. And he was looking back years later, he's in his 40s, he was looking back at a picture of himself when he was seven in this little like cowboy outfit. And he paused and he said, I'm looking at this little boy and for the first time I'm seeing like essentially with the lens of truth to say, is it really possible that this six or seven year old boy could be as bad as I believed him to have been? Is that really possible? No, he's just looking at this, this precious child saying, he's a little boy. And similarly, having to kind of go back through the ways that those narratives have formed me to say, is it really possible that as a five-year-old child, whether, you know, something that I did or was done to me, and the way that that, that shaped me to believe that I was inherently bad, is that actually even possible? When I look at my daughter, who's not far from five, I think, no. It's just not. If, if she was to have an experience similar to mine, and I pray that she doesn't, um, my response would not be to shame her, but, but we want a deep grief for her, that she would be hurting in that way, and how could I comfort her and offer her empathy in that? That's been another piece. It feels like, um, uh, I know I've heard Brene Brown say that if, if shame is in a petri dish and you expose it to empathy, it cannot survive. And so learning to empathize for myself has been really important, but then finding others who have empathy for me so that when, for instance, I share you know, the, the, the brief story that I did with you all, when I, um, this wouldn't be the first setting I share that, right? I'm gonna share that with close friends first. And I expect that they, because sort of the, the, the wires in my brain have been formed in such a way that say, Mallory, this is a shameful thing and people are gonna respond the way that, that you responded. And when you have people who, when you bring that forward and they don't respond by shaming you, but in fact offer you empathy saying, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry you experienced that. Then it literally can rewire my brain to say, oh, there's another option possible, another way of seeing this that really has incredible potential. So listening to it, bringing it into the light, like exposing it to light and to air and and encouraging experiences of empathy both for, towards myself but then inviting others to offer empathy as well. I would add one thing. Um, shame, uh, shame wants to make claims about who you are. Um, and the, what, and it's so internalized. It's such an internal dialogue. It's a monologue. It's, a, it's this repeating uh, thing that feels like I can't even tell the difference between shame and myself. It's so, like, am I saturated with it? And um, I think one way to think about it, and it's, it's, it's a much, I think, a much healthier way, is to externalize shame. Like, shame is that horrible creature or uh, seducer or whatever that is coming with intention to do me harm and is telling, is talking crap to me or is lying to me or is enticing me or whatever. Um, and if shame, if you can just, co just completely externalize that as distinct from yourself, then there's something you can talk back to it. And, uh, and you can say, no, you and I are different, and you're wrong. If it's, if it's so enmeshed with who you are, then any negative thing you say about that, you're saying about yourself. And, and, and then shame, like, checkmate. Like, I totally, I am you, 
it's like you are not you you are you are other and in, in it's a, in in a sense when you can externalize it and it's not another person it's a thing it's an it um, you can do things to an it that you can't do to a human um, and you can uh, talk back to it and you can push back on it and you can be fierce with it and it's not only okay it's good great question I love it what else anything I may have something for you alright alright so um I have two kind of things I wanted to ask you about before we started start to land the plane. One would be, um, you know, shame is talked. We talk. It's been people are talking a lot about shame in 2019. In in the past several years, shame has been a big kind of topic of conversation. So as you've both been, whether it's reading articles or watching things on the television or some podcasts, what have been the things that you heard that have not been helpful in this conversation about shame? Maybe some things that it's like, oh, I wish that people would stop saying or, oh, oh. The kind of things that you just kind of, as we're kind of out there in the world, listening and reading and Conversating, it's like I'm sure you've all, but you've both been a part of conversations, and like I said, reading and listening, where it's like, oof, that is that that is not, and I don't got the time <laughs> to correct this because I got I got to go to bed. You know, one of those one of those, and I guess, and on the same side, uh, another kind of rabbit hole is how how do we become these truth people, these empathy folks? Like, what's What's ways in which we become these people and spaces for others in our lives? Because I think that, and my theory is, we have to often remind people that we are truth, safe, empathetic people to even the closest friends that we have. Because for whatever reason, the things that happen inside of us tells us, you can't say that. You can't share that because then people will reject you if they knew the truth or if they knew all of the details. And so how do we become the people that remind others, you know, hey, I'm not that you've got something, but know that I can be that person. Does that make sense? Those two things? Mm -hmm. Do that all in like three minutes. Okay, go. <laughs> three total? Yeah, 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 yeah. We need to end soon. But yeah, no. okay. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't, nothing stands out to say that I want to make a strong corrective sure. uh, in this moment. I would just say that I'm always thinking about whatever, whatever the topic is, knowing that in the West, in the U.S. particularly, we are a hyper-individualized culture. So any assumption that we can do any of the sort of work totally in isolation from others is just going to be false, and especially because shame isolates us. And we just get in that own loop, like sort of Chris is, is describing this just sort of internal dialogue and sometimes a monologue. Uh, so I would say whatever, uh, however you can, which leads into your second question, find connection with others where this stuff can come to the surface. I find it to be really helpful, not just with anybody, with people who are safe and, and boundaried and healthy, 
Um, but anything that, anytime I find myself drawing towards isolation, whether that's I'm still around a lot of people, but I'm very closed off, or I am just physically really removed and isolated, um, shame just picks up the mic even louder. And so uh, I try to resist that. And that seems like always an important reminder in our in our culture that is hyper-individualized. Um, and then, yeah, to, to, I think people feel it, like they can sense pretty quickly if you are one with whom they can share and be, and be open and honest. I would say maybe one of the best strategies is to allow space for quiet and to ask questions rather than, you know, my first thought. I remember I was sharing with somebody recently about a Bible verse. I said, God, I hate that text. And he said, really? And I thought, I will never share with you ever again. I, I won't stop being honest with people. I'll just find safer people. But then that was your first response. I couldn't even tell you, I don't like this text. And rather than go, interesting, I'd love to hear more about that. You know, rather than extending the invitation, you could tell that it was like, that's a very shaming moment. And I'm like, nope, not going to interact with you any further about this. Um, so allowing space for silence if someone shares something, even when it feels really uncomfortable and you say, I don't even know what to say, but if you would like to say more, I'd be more than willing to listen. And then asking questions, I mean, those sorts of things just make a world of difference. And rather than quickly trying to alleviate my own discomfort in that moment by then trying to, you know, uh, um, make sense of what this person has just said or wrap it up so that they feel good in that moment, just really trying to resist those things seem to offer a safe space for others. Cool. Thank you. I do have two critiques. Yeah. One is um, there is a social process going on and it is ramping up and it is weaponizing shame as a means of civil discourse. Mm -hmm. I will shame you into believing the thing that I believe or out of believing that thing that you believe or whatever. And it's, it's not very effective at the desired outcome and it just when you intentionally use shame as a way to persuade another person, it either crushes them or it builds their resolve in their own position, which may very well be not very good. Um, but it is so ineffective, but it is so powerful, um, weirdly enough. Uh, number two... Celebrity culture is counting on shame to perpetuate itself. Uh, it is counting on comparison. It is counting on, I see something, I'm less than that, I'll aspire to that. And that whole process, getting caught up in that, and it's 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 depleting the world of the good thing that you are in exchange for the thing that you inherently can't be. But all of your energy gets put into being the impossible when being the possible of who you're made to be is neglected. So those two things, I think, I would say are some social processes going on that involve shame and that are really corrosive. Uh, uh, Forgot the Let's give our panel a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for today. Uh, as always, if you 
We have a nice size group here, so feel free to meet each other, shake a hand. Uh, come back next week. It'll be Cinco de Mayo, and the topic for next week will be evangelism and discipleship, two popular talked-about phrases in our Christian culture. So we'll have a conversation around that. Thanks. We'll see you next time.